0: what's up everybody welcome to simply cyber live the stream that every thursday brings you industry experts on for long-form content conversations and today is going to be special we have brought on to the simply cyber stage today bob gorley uh cto of uda uh which we will talk about hosted the Udacon uh, conference not too long ago and we'll get into all that but really the uh the The piece de resistance, if you will, of what we're going to be getting into today is how Bob was like integrally involved in the original APT. We throw APTs around all over the place around here, right? APT 41, APT 39, 47, you know, they get special names sometimes, right? Like, you know, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Well, Bob was working before they even called it APTs, and he was on the very first case. It is an amazing story, and that's just one of the many things that Bob has his fingers on and has gotten into. We we might be getting into military capabilities, trust as an actual uh, you know, security objective and capacity. Uh, obviously, geopolitics and how cyber's evolved over time. There is a million things to get to, but we're starting with that first OG APT to get started. Now, just a little housekeeping rule if you're new here, um, Chad is on stage. You can see it right there, which is absolutely awesome. Uh, feel free to engage with each other, but it, you have the ability to throw a question up on stage and have Bob answer it or get clarification on something, whatever it is, if it's for us, drop a cue in the front of it. So I know I'll flag it, push it to the side and make sure that Bob gets to it uh, as we kind of round through the questions. I am super excited for you guys to meet Bob. He is just an absolute delight. He's a great guy and, uh, you know, let's go get him. Hey, Bob, how you doing? Good, Jerry, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. So I should have said this in the intro, but uh, a lot of people may not know this. Bob and I never knew each other until we met at DEF CON at the US Cyber Games Cocktail Hour, right? Isn't that right, Bob, how we met? Yeah, it was, it was
1: absolutely there. And, uh, but yeah, I think we would have met earlier if it wasn't for the pandemic i have to say
0: yeah the pandemic really did throw a wrench in things but definitely glad uh jess um basically you know said you guys need to meet each other put us together we had a drink uh and you know it blossomed into what is now uh guest appearance on simply cyber Live so really really genuinely appreciate you being here today Bob
1: Well, Jess is the ultimate connector uh, now that you mention it. I think she knows everybody and she's really great at connecting people for these kind of discussions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Well, hopefully she keeps, hey, if she keeps wanting me to meet people, I'm going to continue to meet them because she's put me in touch with very cool people, much like yourself, Bob. So Bob, uh, real, real quick, if you can just maybe like, like to start off the story, like Two sentences about like why you were in the place you were in, but talk to us, Bob, if you would, about what was the original APT and how did you come into you know basically
1: being on the case, if you will, of this threat actor. All right. So quickly, I was in the Navy. I was a Navy intelligence officer starting in 1982, and my uh, job, always through my career, was leaning towards all-source intelligence fusion. So how do you bring all the information together on a complex military operation and figure out what's going on and brief your bosses? So I was that kind of operational intelligence officer. Near the end of my career, I was asked to be the intelligence officer for a new organization called the Joint Task Force for Computer Network Defense. This is the first Department of Defense Cyber Command. It had operational authorities to order Uh, defenses in all DoD networks and all services, and I was their intelligence officer, their J2. So, uh, standing up a new job and a new office and a new organization, um, but bringing these experiences of operational intelligence, and that's how I got into that position.
0: Yeah. So, before we get into your first, uh, you know, I guess your first uh, gig in that role, I'm curious, You know, what was the catalyst for establishing this Cyber Command in the first place?
1: Right. Well, uh, there had been a series of events in the Department of Defense that were very concerning to the Secretary of Defense and the Deputy Secretary of Defense. Uh, There was a series of intrusions that were hitting DOD networks and computers that no one could figure out. And it's at a time when uh, tensions were building with Iraq. We were thinking of bombing Iraq again. Um, and we thought it could be Iraq hacking our networks. No mm-hmm. one could figure it out until after months of investigation. It turns out it was two kids in California mentored by another kid in Israel. Uh, this was Operation Solar Sunrise, and it was really one of the catalysts that pushed the, gov- the Department of Defense to act. Another one was an exercise led by red teamers out of NSA Uh, It was part of a a joint staff command and control exercise. These red teamers from NSA were able to prove that they could go from unclassed Internet systems through into the Department of Defense systems, still unclassified, and they were able to prove that they could go all the way into secret systems, and if they wanted to, change important data. Uh, One example of data they proved they could change They could log into medical databases and change blood types. Imagine a conflict where your medical treatment is actually killing people. Mm -hmm. Uh, This got the attention of Department of Defense leadership and pushed them to find a solution. Create a Cyber Command, the Joint Task Force for Computer Network Defense.
0: You know, what's interesting, and I just fact-checked this to confirm. So this is 1998 that Bob's talking about right now. And just real quick, it seems ludicrous to think that there wouldn't be some federal cyber command or or cyber capability at the nation, at the federal level in 2022, right? But in 1997, it didn't even exist. What I just fact-checked is there was definitely a... Um, a, a, a perfect storm or a, a conflagration of things going on loft crack the, or the loft group out of Boston led by Mudge famously and, and several others. Um, They testified famously in front of Congress as their hacker selves in 1998 also. So there was a lot going on at the federal level yep. uh, from yep. a, you know, legislative position and a military position around, you know, cyber insecurity, frankly. Yeah. So
1: I was there for that too. And uh, just prior to that, my business associate, Matt DeVoe, um, had graduated from uh, a college in Vermont, written a thesis on the importance of using hackers uh, to support the national security community. Uh, that thesis came to the attention of people like uh, Richard Clark, who was in the white house and helped motivate him to reach out to people like aloft And um, so I think that was a very important uh, formative stage for getting the national security community to wake up to the importance of reaching out to the security community.
0: Yeah, can you repeat that that uh that author for the thesis out of Vermont?
1: Yes, that's my business associate. Today he's the CEO of UDA, Matt DeVoe. Matt DeVoe, I'd love to look at
0: that because it almost sounds like a bit of you know, a bit of cybersecurity industry history as well as potentially a seminal paper for you know, launching a thousand ships,
1: if you will. Yeah, it really is. And let me tell you another he wrote right around then. And this is how I met him, by the way. There was a a contest that was run at the National Defense University on information warfare. It was called the Sun Tzu Information Warfare Contest. Matt wrote a paper with some co-authors in 1995 that won that contest. Now, get this title. It was titled, In the Age of Digital Terrorism, Can You Trust Your Toaster? Oh, boy. And this is that way before person. IOT. Yeah, this yeah. is way before. Way before IOT. And so is that I,
0: is that kind of Matt's style? I mean, is he kind of a visionary, like big picture, futuristic thinking kind of guy?
1: He is. And you ought to get a load of what he's writing about today and talking about today. It's really fascinating. I think we should get into that a bit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So. Okay, so Solar Sunrise happens it's kids and you know someone from Israel, which by the way, Israel is fantastic at cybersecurity if you didn't already know that. Small country, big capability. Um they stand up the cyber command. So what what's it look like day 1? You go in there with a lunchbox and just say, you know, show me to the to the uh mainframe or what, yeah.
1: what are we doing? You know, it, was, it was kind of funny because uh, no one really wanted to house us, but uh, these uh, four stars are saying you've got to house them. Uh, we were stood up in the DISA headquarters. Uh, I, we were in a bunch of old trailers in the parking lot. My first desk was a door over some um, you know, other boxes to hold the door up. It was a perfectly fine desk, but it's kind of ratty. Uh, they did build us a place in the DISA headquarters to move into. We had the skiff and comms. DISA became a host. Uh, They couldn't. I mean, at first, to stand us up, we were a direct report to the Secretary of Defense, which is not how the American military works. Really, Mm -hmm. you know, everybody knew we're supposed to uh, eventually be underneath a combatant commander. A lot of fights and um, battles over who would take us, Uh, with the Air Force wanting to take control, uh, the combatant command saying no, you can't. Finally, a Space Command was really clamoring to get control of us. They were given control. We report directly to Space Command. Wait Later, a minute, in
0: 1998? Yeah, in 1998,
1: there was a Space Command, Colorado I've... Springs. Now, eventually, yeah. they, in another reorganization, uh, merged into um, uh, uh, Stratcom, and it became Stratcom became our boss. Well, all of this was occurring um, while we were there trying to stand up defenses of the networks. So we had subordinate organizations in the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. Uh, The certs in those organizations uh, still worked for their services, but they operationally reported to us. The intelligence community by CONOP had agreed to support us. Um, All I had to do was articulate needs to them, and they would support us. Great support from the intel community. But as soon as that stood up, um, there were some key issues that people had been tracking that needed to be handed handed to us. And one of those was Moonlight Maze.
0: Okay, so, Moonlight Maze, it begins. Yeah. Where'd the name come from? How, how did these names come up? Well, in this
1: case, it was law enforcement that named it. Okay. Um, and prior to us standing up, this was, uh, and still it was law enforcement led investigation. Um, the Air Force Office of Special Investigations were called in to investigate a series of anomalous events in Dayton, Ohio. And those anomalous events included a system administrator logging in when he wasn't logging in Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and a a contractor noticed that investigation started and um, it soon expanded out to other services. FBI got involved because Mm -hmm. it was um, hitting multiple organizations, including commercial organizations and I believe it was the FBI who named it Moonlight Maze.
0: Okay. All right. So it, it lands on your desk. Now, just so I understand, I didn't get that. you're you're a team of one, but you have access to resources in different uh, departments. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Yep. Okay.
0: Okay. So it lands on your desk. Are you like, what do I do with this? <laughs>
1: well, you know... Um... I remember some of the people briefing us on Moonlight Maze were just really glad that, yeah, I'm glad you guys got it now. And um, meanwhile, we only had it for Department of Defense. The FBI was in charge of a law enforcement investigation. And they made it clear to me and others, you do not interfere with this investigation. And some of the things I started saying early on caused them to caution me that if you interfere with a law enforcement investigation, you could be in trouble, even arrested yourself. But it's just because I'm saying things like, hey, this could be a nation state. We need to pursue this. Uh, it could be China. It could be Russia. Um, they did not like that. They wanted to proceed as if they're going to collect evidence and take it to court. Well, if it's a nation state, you're not going to take them to court. Not going to happen.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Get in line with like all of the North Koreans from Lazarus Group that have been indicted and all of... You know, like there's, more, I think the DOJ has more indictments for people who are n- <laughs> never going to be brought to justice than they do people brought to justice, but that's a, yeah.
1: that's an editorial. All right. So, yes. so now well, your button you button heads. Was- when when briefed on all this stuff, I thought, you know, it probably is, uh, it's something the Intel community has to work. I consulted with some old mentors. It's always good to have mentors. One of the guys I asked was a guy named Rich Haver, who's been around in the Intel community for a long time. He told me to go read some deeply classified material um, from a guy named Oleg Pinkovsky, who was providing secrets from the Soviet Union. He was a GRU officer. He was providing these to the UK. Uh, now he had died in 1963. So this is 35 years before the event.
0: Yeah. But there's
1: stuff he provided way back then that, my mentor thought would be relevant and sure enough i read this by the way there's unclassified stuff written about him too called the penkovsky papers okay if you read these penkovsky papers it laid out exactly how the old soviet union would collect scientific and technical information for the gru if the gru um, needed something they would task uh, groups like the soviet academy of sciences To go attend conferences and collect information for example and he went on with extensive detail and described how they did this well this matched up very well with what we were seeing in moonlight maze we knew that whoever was stealing this information was targeting scientific and technical info they were targeting computers that had stuff of use to military uh, design but also um, scientific things like a total atmospheric electron count was on one server that was attacked. Um, there were a lot of other things that led us to believe that, okay, not only is it a nation state, it could be Russia. Once I started to form this thesis, we're able to then go out and task collectors. We tasked human to do things in Moscow. We tasked any SIGINT we could. We uh, used imagery to look for places where there might be, um, uh, internet service providers in Russia. We tasked everything we could and started calling meetings together. I formed an assessment that said, I believe that this is Russia. Uh, It's the GRU using technical talent from the Russian Academy of Sciences, like the old Soviets did with the Soviet Academy of Sciences. Same building, different name now. Mm -hmm. Um, And that became my operating thesis. The FBI, frankly, got mad about that. But This went all the way up to the senior levels of DOD, DOD, and DOJ had uh, meetings, including some in the Oval Office, where it was concluded that uh, DOJ is still in charge of this investigation. But the Department of Defense has to take action as if this is a nation state that's attacking us. And it was the first advanced persistent threat. And so we did take action.
0: Yeah. So let me ask you about that, because like you're, you're treading into like Kind of uncharted waters at this point. Now there was a playbook, if you will. There is a, a rules of engagement and how to operate um, traditional military warfare. But that's usually like you can look across the field and see your enemy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or you can you can with aerial imagery see their supply lines and stuff. We're operating in a uh, dynamic where geographical location and, and proximity are no longer relevant. Um, how, how did that? I mean, did it take a did it take time? for people to accept that and wrap their head around it? Or was, or is 1998 so far along that like, you know, computers were
1: commonplace and people were like, okay, this is natural. It was really hard for people to wrap their uh, head around it. And uh, there, there was a history. This was not the first um, Russian activity in cyberspace. Mm -hmm. You might recall the story, the cuckoo's egg, uh, written about uh, intrusions in 1986, which was, um, it's a couple of kids trying to sell stuff to the KGB, but that is highly re- widely regarded as the first uh, KGB uh, wading into cyberspace for espionage. Uh, yeah,
0: it's called uh, Cuckoo's Egg, and it's by Cliff Stoll, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually going to bring it up on chat so people can see the book. I've I've read it. It is it is a fascinating uh, book, and his writing style is.
1: Uh, Very very enjoyable. You know, I really think it's one of those great books that's like should be in the canon of our knowledge because He's doing things that today are the first, you know, it's like the first intrusion detection system um, and the first Monitoring of networks, you know setting the way he set up uh, printers to alert whenever this intruder came online Yeah, Uh, so
0: you could see you could see it right here uh, the book here uh, Cuckoo's egg by Cliff Stoll Little bit very similar to your situation, Bob, but a little different. Uh, this was at UCal Berkeley, um, and you know this was in the '70s, right? Late '70s, I think, '78, '86. Oh, '86. Okay, yeah. So, uh, yeah, this is another good one. Uh, there's a question in chat. She didn't preface it with a Q, but it's so good that I definitely want to bring it up. Uh, longtime Simply Cyber Community member and wonderful person, Jess Bishop, uh, wants to know if you have documented. Moonlight Maze in your experience and, and uh, in book form?
1: There, I have not personally. Um, I've written a little bit about it, just short pieces. Um, but uh, Fred Kaplan has a couple chapters on this in one of his books, uh, The Dark Territory. And I think he does a very good job of describing the early days of cyber conflict um, and has a pretty good section on Moonlight Maze.
0: Wow. Okay. So, and just just as a quick aside, I know um, some people just got in the door here. We're talking with Bob Goarly about his work as basically uh, in the Department of Navy, uh, but he was in a special task force, um, the original Cyber Command, working on the original APT. Uh, and also, I just want to point out, Bob. A lot of times guests come on and they share like, you know, a couple resources. I have like six different assets that I have to go look. All these different papers, all these different books, um, the Penkovsky papers. Like you're, you're just dropping knowledge like it's like it's
1: going out of style, man. I, I love it. Thank you. Oh, thanks Thank for saying that. But I want to I want to mention a couple other things like Penkovsky papers. Read that. Cuckoo's egg. Read that. But um, I I bet everybody has heard of the Battle of Midway in World War Two. A couple of great movies out on that. Fantastic books if you're into history. That also played into this. Uh, one of my mentors at the time was a retired Navy two-star intelligence officer who had been in the Battle of Midway as an ensign, um, Admiral Max Showers. And as a mentor to me, I met with him right before taking over this job at the J2 here. And he recounted for me the way we won the Battle of Midway was through not just intelligence, but getting proactive in our intelligence, Mm -hmm. baiting the adversary to do something. And once they did that, we would know what they were up to. Uh, So getting proactive by feeding them something and then watching their reaction.
0: Yeah. I mean, that was the the approach that they used at Midway, correct me if I'm wrong, Bob, and I'm happy to go into a discussion on it, was effectively almost like threat hunting cryptanalysis, right? Like they thought they had broken some of the codes. So they started doing certain military positions in order to see if Japan would communicate a
1: certain way. And if they yeah. did, they yeah, would confirm. Right. It, as I recall, it was, uh, they they had, the Japan was using a symbol, even after you broke their code, it was like, AQ, where is that? It could be the Aleutians or it could be Midway. So they had folks on Midway pass a message that says, our water desalinization plant is down mm-hmm. and then you see this turned around in Japanese communications and we're able to break more of their code and say yes they're headed for midway
0: yeah it's it's absolutely fantastic I love it so so getting back to uh, moonlight maze so you have now basically you know gone down the rabbit hole you have high confidence that it's GRU working out of the Soviet sciences, you know, refactored Soviet sciences academy. Um, what what happens at that point? I mean, do, do you hand it over like the FBI cannot investigate it because they don't do um, they do domestic only. So well,
1: actually, um, at the time they were doing a little bit of global stuff and we got really lucky. The FBI had just done a big favor to the then president of Russia, Boris Yeltsin. uh, There was a website in the U.S. that was saying some bad stuff about his daughter, and they wanted that taken down. Now, all sorts of freedom of speech kind of issues, but FBI found a way to do it and did this big favor to Yeltsin. So it was time for them to ask a favor of him. And they asked. They said, hey, there's," and by the way, before doing this, they asked the Department of Defense and other agencies if it was okay to do this. Everybody objected and said, no, don't do this. But the Department of Justice went into the White House and got the White House permission to do this. So I wanted to say not everybody agreed this was the right approach, but the FBI thought, look, there's a violation of the law. We're all law abiding nations that want to work together as one. So uh, we just did this favor for Boris Yeltsin. Let's get Russian law enforcement to do us a favor. Mm -hmm. And they um, asked if we could go over there and investigate a computer crime. So they pulled together a task force led by FBI, but it included an um, Office of Special Investigations and a National in uh, a uh, Navy NCIS rep and went to Moscow. We went to the ISP where we thought some of these attacks were coming from. We knew dates and times when they came from there, we searched the records, and sure enough, we found attacks coming from that ISP that relate to the Russian Academy of Sciences. A quick-thinking OSI um, investigator uh, remembered another date that they hadn't even brought in case they are being manipulated and said, let me check on this date and time. Found it. Yeah, there's an attack right there. So they're getting success. They were there on a four-day trip. Let me tell you what happened. After that meeting, all cooperation stopped. The Russian MVD, internal police uh, colonel, who was cooperating, disappeared. Never to (laughs) be seen again oh my god okay you know so that's one uh, way to solve the problem holy crap the investigation team for the rest of that four-day trip were given nice tours of the city and shown you know pretty places from uh history and culture and museums and stuff like that Mm -hmm. so what was happening there russia like other big bureaucracies like a lot of our bureaucracies don't talk to everybody the GRU had not told the MVD, don't help these guys. The MVD didn't tell the GRU that the Americans are coming with a law enforcement investigation. Uh, so it, it all found out too late.
0: Oh, my goodness. Okay, so it, are the attacks still actively going on at this time? Is it like an active campaign or or had it gone dormant and you were just kind of doing a, a you know, postmortem or a retrospective? It was extremely
1: for- active. Uh, but... As this was going on, since we knew now it's an espionage campaign by a sophisticated adversary, we have to take action. So we took a lot of action. We increased our defenses across DOD, pushed them out of the places we could, um, issued orders for how to patch and improve defenses, and really made a huge difference briefly. Um, As you know, cyber conflict is never over. It's the infinite game. In this particular battle, I say we won. We proved that uh, intelligence and being proactive and forcing the adversary to do certain things revealed themselves, revealed their tactics. We were able to stop those tactics. The bad news is it's never over. Um, Just like other conflict, it's infinite. They came back lower and slower. And, And the Chinese came back too. The Chinese started attacking after that
0: yeah and i again i'm not sure if you're allowed to disclose you know this or not but um did you guys engage with um nsa at any point i know you had like access to different departments but you know they have the tip 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 of the spear as far as cyber capabilities go so you know did you did you consult with them yeah
1: absolutely they were critical to our success um i called meetings with the entire intelligence community and they sent reps from across their organization you know at the time there were two major sides to NSA there was offense and defense essentially mm-hmm. and they would send reps from both to participate in our meetings and help us figure out what was going on and these kind of meetings by the way were open free for alls with a lot of different ideas on who this could be and we didn't always agree including NSA who would you know bring a lot of information um, and I can't say that this is the assessment of everyone, um, but, you know, they they contributed a lot and were very helpful.
0: Very, very interesting. So there you go, everybody. That's Moonlight Maze, the original APT. Um, and, and like Bob said, you know, you just you kind of stub them out, push them out the door. But, you know, they, they go and check the door handle on all the other doors. Uh, Can I
1: mention one other thing that I think is relevant to socks today? You know, I can you can mention as much as
0: you want, Bob. Get get all over it. You can take the stage. I'll leave.
1: (laughs) I I see a lot of security operations centers today. I work with a lot of security professionals. I know a lot of CISOs. I have friends in the community. And the really good ones, they're proactive. Probably Mm -hmm. everybody in your community. The reason they're here is they're already being proactive. Mm -hmm. And that was the secret to success with Moonlight Maze that is most relevant. We were proactive. And I think all the people by definition who are in your community are proactive people Mm -hmm. who want to dig a little deeper. And I think that it's a that's the kind of thing we want in security professionals in our community.
0: I would agree 100 percent when I'm hiring. um, You know, I put a lot uh, you know, spoiler alert, by the way, if if you ever interview with me, I put a lot of emphasis in uh, to proactivity initiative. Uh, self self-service, you know what I mean? Because I can't, I can't show you everything. I need to be able to give you like a direction and have you, uh, you know, come back to me when you run into an obstacle, not, not walk down the path with you. Um, you know, I could do it a couple of times, but for the most part, I'm hiring. So I can, so I can focus on other things. Right. Uh, and, and that proactivity, um, you know, a hundred, percent, super valuable. Um, So kind of like staying within Moonlight Maze because like people are just salivating. I am an avatar of chat right now. I am salivating just wanting to know every little morsel of detail of this. Um, I'm curious, like you talked about, you know, not everybody had the same opinion and there was a lot of discussion going on. Like how often did like politics or um, power struggles get in the way of progress or in the way of right things? And did it ever kind of, um, did, you know, did depreciate the mission?
1: Yeah, and it's funny because human beings are human beings, really. And that's another reason to look back at history, because the same kind of thing is going on today. There's, uh, I was just in a conference today and yesterday dealing with cybersecurity in space, and we're diving into things like the new Space Command, and the relationship between that and DISA and NRO and other agencies. And I'm hearing echoes of the same kind of uh, bureaucratic inefficiencies that we had during Moonlight Maze. So yes, not everybody agreed back then, not everybody agrees today. There's something very human about that. Um, but as a leader, I made the point to try to stay above the fray mm-hmm. and just articulate things as this is my assessment. And here's why I have my assessment. Here's what I know and what I don't know and what I think. And just speak clearly. Some people pushed back when I said, it's my assessment that Russia is behind Moonlight Maze. One, a J3 from the joint staff told me, so you're saying Russia has conducted an act of war against the United States? You need to be very careful before you start saying that stuff. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that Russia is conducting espionage in our networks. Uh, You may decide it's an act of war or not, but historically, espionage has not been an act of war. And then I mentioned before the FBI pushing back, and they disagreed vehemently that I had an assessment, that I should not be allowed to have an assessment in their opinion. But the fact is, I am an intelligence officer. It's my job to have an assessment. So. Everything was not all in agreement. Others would say that, uh, you know, maybe it was Iran. Uh, Maybe it was um, some other, maybe it's a big criminal group. The evidence was overwhelming that it was Russia uh, through the Russian Academy of Sciences. Uh, Another key point, this evidence is not just forensic evidence. If you were only looking at network forensic evidence, I think you could have said, hey, who knows? Could have been anyone even today, if there's an incident on your networks, forensics and network forensics is extremely important. That shouldn't be your only information to figure out who it is. You need all source information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So
0: let me like, okay. So as far as getting all this information goes, this, this, this group goes to Russia, you get, you know, hard evidence to confirm your assumptions. And then you get basically lip service of like, here's the Kremlin, here's, here's, you know, this other landmark or whatever, you guys basically get kind of d- walked around. And, right. So when you fly back, I mean, is it at that point you just say, all right, like, that's what the deal is. Like the case is over. Like, I know you said you pushed them out uh, and then they came back later, but like at that point, you guys, does the FBI just put the case away? Cause they know that they're not going to pursue a arrest
1: or anything? Or how, how does it resolve? Eventually, um, you know, there was wrap up testimony to Congress. So there's public stuff out there. Um, but eventually the investigation was wound down because, you know, the, the adversary is not being seen anymore.
0: Interesting. So, all right, well, you've obviously, like, right out the gate established value uh, of the DOD setting up this Cyber Command, which I don't even know what they called it at that time, but it was the first Cyber Command, and you were the, you know, the lieutenant or the, not the lieutenant, the intel officer over yeah. at the J2. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: you know, what, I guess, just out of curiosity, how did that, like, while you were still there, how did that Cyber Command continue to operate? Did, yeah. it, did it evolve quickly? Because, mm-hmm. you know... A lot of things yeah. when they first we started were, out move
1: quickly. Yeah, we were a. Uh, my boss was a two star Air Force fighter pilot, great leader uh, who was responsible for standing up our organization. I was the J2, we had a J3 director of operations, we had a J5 director of plans, um, J1 director of admin, like a military joint task force. We ended up reporting to Space Command, a four star. So my two-star boss worked for the four-star general. Interesting dynamic there. Um, everybody on the SpaceCom staff thought they were everybody's boss on our staff. So um, that's my. we just made it clear that, no, I only have one boss. It's my two-star, yeah. uh, not you 400 guys. But the B- fact bunch, is- A bunch of chiefs. Bunch of- yeah, that's right. Yeah. Except the intel guys are a little bit different. I had a. There was a great J2 at Space Command, who was all about the mission and all about intelligence support to the mission. Mm-hmm. So he and I forged this wonderful relationship, where he did everything possible to deliver intelligence support to our organization. Mm-hmm. And uh, his staff, many of them, did not like the fact that I'm going directly to the intelligence agencies in DC. The J2 was fine with it, but his staff got very, very jealous and got tried to get in the way of that. He gave me the top cover I needed to keep doing what was important for the mission. So, a lot of lessons there. Great leader in the Spacecom J2. Uh, his deputy, an 06 Navy, uh, Gail Harris. I'm still friends with her today. Mm-hmm. Extremely supportive of the mission and, and what we do. So, uh, that's another thing. Back then, the team, a lot of military esprit. These are all still my friends today. Uh, i am in, in touch with these guys uh, frequently. Yeah. We've all gone different ways, but we stick together and talk about these days.
0: I love it. Um, so, you know, it kind of begs the question, because we see a lot of movement around cyber commands, like basically over the last couple of years, like each agency has its own cyber capability. And then NSA was kind of the tip, tip, tip of the spear, like I said. And then um, CISA came out on the scene and they're providing kind of like leadership and DHS has its thing. Um, and now there's cyber command. It, I mean, um, excuse me, uh, cyber is labeled as the fifth battlefield now, um, you know, in, in the, in the military theater capacity. So there's a lot of, I'm in charge of cyber here, but, you know, there's no I, I want to know your thoughts around the splintering of all that. And are you philosophically, are you aligned to consolidating these things as kind of one super agency with uh, liaisons into the other agencies? Or do you like it the way it is? I, I'm curious your thoughts on,
1: you know, the structure and where it could go. Yeah. In some ways, I feel unqualified to really talk about that because um, I could easily get it wrong. So let me just give you these observations.
0: Okay. In, uh, okay. back When I spoke started... like a, like a real Intel person
1: Go <laughs> ahead. Well, I, w- I want to give you some helpful info but not say I'm you know definitely hundred uh, percent confident. Um, like in the late 90s, early 2000s, there were computer emergency response teams. By the way, there was a time in our history when there was no such thing as a SOC. There was no such thing as a security operations center. Um, I remember when there was only one CISO, the first CISO in the world, Steve Katz, was in 1997, 1998. So these in these days, people realized they needed computer emergency response teams. And all of a sudden, there's like 30 of them in the Department of Defense. And we go <laughs> around and uh, people did surveys. You know, how many certs do we need? And everybody agreed we only need one or two, but I got to have mine. Yeah. Um, and now it could be a similar thing with security overall. How do you how much needs to be distributed and how much centralized? Another big issue is with cyber command, good move, smart move, mm-hmm. it's dual-headed with NSA. Not a good move for a bunch of bad reasons. One is one guy with two jobs, collect Intel and defend all of DoD from cyber. Um, and they know he will not give up that job. Whoever's in that position, he or she, will not give up the job on their own. That's just not the nature of a person that gets that kind of position. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's very inefficient. The NSA is one of the crown jewels of America's intelligence capabilities. It needs to be well-led, and it needs to have a dedicated leader. The Cyber Command is one of the most important combatant commands in the Department of Defense. It needs a good full-time leader. And a good structure and it's really time to separate those another thing to consider department of homeland security is Mm -hmm. really still a new department it's formed after 9 11 uh, 20 years is uh, brand new in uh, american history really they they're doing great in cyber the cyber policy coming out of dhs is good and smart and informed the cyber actions out of CISA, i'm extremely proud of these people They're great, Um, strong supporters of theirs. So if five or six years ago you said who should lead uh, security for the nation, I might say, well, maybe Cyber Command ought to do it for the nation. Now I'm saying, no, let's just keep beefing up CISA. Look at what they're doing. They're incredible. Do you agree? I, I, you know, you're not going
0: to find a bigger champion of Jen Easterly than me. I think I think Cisa is doing wonderful work, and I feel like they were cruising on the highway at like 65, so they were really moving and they were going in the right direction. And then Jen Easterly got into the driver's seat and like flipped, like Fast and the Furious, like she flipped a button. There was like a Nas button, and she's just like, <laughs> and and she's just taking it like so far. And you know, one of the best things that Cesa's done is like we've been talking about military capability and government and secret rooms and secret conversations and class material and all this other stuff under jen's uh stewardship cisa has really blossomed into into embracing this public private partnership and you know we all share the same internet right like and like private critical infrastructure resides in the private sector it is not a public sector service public sector has concerns and interests and, you know, there's town water and stuff like that, but energy plants, energy grids, those are for-profit banks, economics, agriculture. Those are all for-profit private sector businesses. And in order to actually properly protect the country and its interests, you need, you need to collaborate with them and get their input and provide value to them. You know what? Sorry, Bob, you've, 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 you've hit a nerve with me. Like one of the biggest problems that we had for years and Jen fixed it was the government would be like, please submit all incidents that you suffer. Please tell us all the IOCs and TTPs and crap you see. Like, just let us ingest everything. And human nature is reciprocal. And if you're just giving someone something because you're a patriot or, you know, you're doing your part and there's no reciprocation, like, where is the motivation? Like, if you're, it's the end of the day and you're like, ugh, like... You know, I should do it, but I don't want to because I want to go home and this is bull crap. There's no, there's no reason for me to do it anymore. I don't see the value in it. She turned it on its head where now they're publishing known uh, exploited vulnerabilities. So you can actually prioritize your vulnerabilities within your organization. There's ISACs up the wazoo all over the place, which is, you know, partly through CISA. And then, you know, the shields up very, very outward facing presence, right? I, I'm a huge advocate of security awareness and needing to be in people's faces with con- consistency because they need to be able to know, okay, this is, this is someone's agenda. This is what they're doing for me. Every time I see them, it's consistent. Uh, so I want to see it. I want to hear it. Uh, and Jen has done that. So yeah. that is my opinion. I well, love thanks, what SIS I- is
1: doing. I value your opinion, and I think it's informed, and it's right. Here's another point about uh, Jen. Um, You know, remember this movie, Good Will Hunting, with Matt Damon? He's a a janitor, mathematician, and there's a problem on a blackboard that's impossible to solve. But nobody told him it's impossible, so he goes in and solves it. Well, uh, let me tell you another impossible problem to solve is cybersecurity for public education across the country Um, kindergarten through 12th grade. It's been so impossible to solve. No one in government has dared even try except Jen. And she's making progress. We see that today. And I feel like uh, that's the soft underbelly of our nation. It needs to be improved. And nobody has done anything about it until um, recently. And I'm so proud of CISA for tackling these hard problems that no one else has been looking at.
0: Yeah, for for years we've been treating the symptoms not the problem, right? And you know, you can you can stop the bleeding right here at, at the tactical level, at the transactional level. Hey, you know, you know, you're a network engineer 25 years old. Here, let me let me skill you up really quick on cybersecurity. Now you can help protect whatever. But it's 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 a point in time, it's not a solution. It's just it just kicks the can down the road. I'm 100% with you. Actually, I just saw um last week or this week uh, recently, uh, a company released a K through 12 program that is free. It's a freemium model, so right there's like you you can pay a monthly fee and get an upgraded thing, but it's K through 12, or it's really K through like uh, fifth grade. It's it's young kids, but it it looks like. Um, uh village crossing or what one of these games that it's like the small body big head uh little characters and they live in this like little ecosystem kind of thing and it looks very bubblegummy and and cute and pastel colors but it's underbelly it's everything underneath it that is engaging is cybersecurity related so like you solve little puzzles but the puzzles are like making like not a crappy password or understanding um like not how multi-factor attacks work, but understanding that like, oh, you know, like you dropped, you dropped your breadcrumbs and now someone can uh, figure out like what kind of cake you made or something like that. And if you had, you know, like bought a, a second factor, like a dustpan brush that behind you, you can clean up that mess and they can't get it. So, stuff like that. It's relatable to children. Um, so you're kind of like secretly educating them and. Um, uh, on best practices and, and getting their their mind right on it and i think that that really is important i, I another uh, jen is attacking this and i love it but but one of the other problems that i would argue is that first of all the well bob pull me back animal crossing thank you bob pull me back from the, from the ledge if i go too far but there's another systemic issue is that the american education system is kind of broken and Teachers in K through twelve aren't financially compensated appropriately, so therefore they're not really motivated. You don't have that specialized skill set uh, of cybersecurity practitioners who are going to go in. Like hell, it's hard to get them to go into academia because of the compensation packages versus uh, private sector, right? So, so you have this like um, void in talent uh, on uh, already coupled on the void of curriculum, you know, for these individuals. Um, so I think video games are going to be the right way to go. This one particular one I'm mentioning is a step in the right direction, but I think the only way to do it is video games simply because a video game can be controlled by the individual end user without needing a lot of, um, uh, curriculum direction, right? You don't have to educate. You don't have to be a cybersecurity teacher in order to have a kid play a video game and learn some best practices and skill. You just kind of monitor them. Um, yeah. so anyways, these are my thoughts on that. Uh, I'll, I'll turn it back to you, Bob.
1: Cool. No, these are all good points, and um, I think very important.
0: Yeah, I, I do. This is me, Bob. I, I uh, and I saw people in chat dropping spicy things. Certain certain things, I'm just I'm super passionate about cybersecurity, and there's certain things that I just really have opinions on, very strong, and I get really um, I just get really excited about it, Bob. <laughs> so, so that's that's that. Let, let me uh, throw it to a couple questions here in chat that I saw. Um, well, this is a bit older one when we were talking about Moonlight Maze. But Adam wanted to know about the first honeypot. Did did you guys do any kind of active defense back then,
1: um, did, either with Moonlight Maze? or Yeah, go ahead. Uh, we did honeypots. It was part of our campaign to figure out who this was. So we set up honeypots to try to track these guys. And the way we got proactive, I mentioned the Battle of the Midway. Uh, that was being proactive. We found some proactive things to do, essentially putting bugs in beacons and setting up something that would be juicy for the moonlight maids um, attacker to get, and then using that as clues to figure out who it was. That's awesome. So legit
0: honey tokens back in the day. So even in the '90s, that that technique was, um, you know, well versed and well well in there. Um slightly unrelated but Ben noticed your uh lock pick or your lock collection in the back. You pick locks um
1: Bob is that in your, oh, in your I do I play around with it but look he says are you the lock picking lawyer? That's very flattering to me. How very kind of him to say that. Um yeah. but you know no I'm in, I'm in the lock picking lawyer's fan club um that's a, but but no uh, Yeah he's I'm not very the lock good lock picking lawyer.
0: Yeah, I also see in your background you've got a a it uh, looks like an Air Force pilot survival
1: knife uh, kit there. <laughs> that was, you know, during the pandemic, I found in one of my storage boxes my old survival knife. And it it was the kind issued to the Air Force. And me, I was in the Navy. Um, and it's really one of the worst survival knives ever made in human history. It's done by the lowest bidder. And it, it dulls so quickly, they had to give you a little sharpening stone with it so you could sharpen it every time you cut a coconut open but but that's the original
0: that that's interesting I, the reason i recognize it uh is because i have the same one as a gift from uh, a good friend of mine who's a, a b2 bomber uh weapons uh nav uh, and i thought that the stone was so if you fell behind enemy lines you could keep it sharp and live for a long time i didn't realize i don't have any perspective on knives so apparently i didn't realize it sucked uh thanks for breaking that to me pop
1: yeah. hey in uh, recent gear you know this is you never know when you might need this. You might get locked out of your office on the way to work, or you leave your fob at home and you might need this. Is that a credit uh, card uh, sleeve? Like, no, uh, it's not they... a credit card. It's the size of a credit card, but it's got all your basic tools. And...
0: Yeah, but you can or, slide it into your wallet, yeah?
1: Or a little bit bigger case if you...
0: Ooh. Yeah, you don't dabble, Bob. You've got multiple options in your lock lockpicking uh, uh, arsenal back there. Mm. I love it. I do love it. So let's let's change uh, topics a little bit. This is one that's near and dear to my heart and aligned to what you are doing. So I have been, like, I believed in my heart of hearts, and I, I it's probably because I love cybersecurity so much, that the next military conflict, like global military conflict, would be a cyber war. We've heard the term, you know, cyber Pearl Harbor is going to be the next major event. Someone's going to strike hard um, you know, wanna cry style and just blow everything up. Um, you know, proverbially blow everything up, uh, and then we see what happened in Ukraine with with Russia. Russia attacked Ukraine. It is the global conflict. Russia came hot and heavy out the gate with cyber weapons, knocking over websites. Um, you know, the net, the internet went down. You know, um, and then quickly after march you know april starts up you have some of the it army from on the ukraine side kind of this call to arms anyone want to help us defend attack but that isn't really a military capability it's a it's essentially like a volunteer workforce what are your thoughts on cybersecurity as a military capability and how it would be or or your thoughts on how it's being implemented in the current conflict
1: well um, I've come to believe that there will never be a cyber war. And what I mean is never a cyber-only war. It's going to be kinetic plus cyber. And cyber is so incredibly important to war. But the war in Ukraine, as you see, and as you just mentioned, is both. It is, you know, you, if you want to take and hold territory you need to send people and you send people they need to be armed and if you want to push people out of your territory when they're invading uh, you've got to do that with weapons it's the only way to get them to surrender or give up or uh, die in place so cyber helps cyber can make your uh, folks more efficient but cyber does not replace pushing out the adversaries with force and when it comes to uh, Capabilities to attack another nation like Russia before the war. They were definitely trying to conduct espionage. They were definitely intruding on networks and they were definitely attacking things. But the defenders get a say in that too. And the Ukrainian defenders have been preparing since 2014, uh, improving their defenses. I give them a lot of credit. Also, you know, all good nations are starting to cooperate and collaborate together. It started with five eyes and then it, it became NATO, uh, then all of the EU mm-hmm. and the EU was helping Ukraine start to build their defenses in this conflict. I know there were some uh, uh, European nations that had sent defenders to Ukraine and the U.S. had advisors there, too, helping with defense. Ukrainian defenders should get all the credit, 100 percent of the credit. But it's a big team effort. So because of that team effort, it was harder for Russia to really uh, use cyber to cause any true impact. They did have a successful damaging attack against uh, some European ground stations for satellites, Mm -hmm. the ViaSat attacks. Um, But that was remediated fairly quickly and it had no real impact on the war.
0: Yeah. I mean it, it it's surpri- it is surprising. I mean you do bring up a very inarguable point that if you're going to t- like I guess the it's a difference is what is the objective? Is the objective just to cripple or is the objective to take the territory? And as you put, if it's to take the territory, you have to physically be present. You can't you can't cyber weapon your way into owning land <laughs> basically. Um so so that is a really uh valid point. I, I guess I just would would expect as Jess Bishop says in chat right here, or someone else maybe had mentioned it prior, that you know, knocking out the power so you can't, uh, you know, work at night or you don't have access to digital communications, so your your method of coordinating and logistic uh, logistical coordination, we need this many bullets, we need to move troops to this area, uh, becomes depreciated, and you're operating in a much slower capacity as opposed to your adversaries who, you know, say what you will. Dan Carlin, who's a podcaster who does hardcore history. I don't know if you've ever listened to hardcore history, Bob. I have, yeah. Yeah, Dan Carlin's excellent. But he always points out, um, and for those of you who don't know, Dan Carlin does hardcore history. It's a podcast on military history mostly, almost exclusively. He always points out that the side with the technological advantage almost always wins. And that's why when gunpowder came on the scene, it just overwhelmed everyone. That's why when the H-bomb came on the scene... You know, it, like basically, it ended World War Two or the atom bomb. So, um, you know, with this technical advantage of cyber, I, I guess I would just think it would be more weaponized. Now, I would argue that it might, we might begin to see it get turned on a little higher as we enter winter. Winter in Eastern Europe, um, heat will become very important. Um, frozen pipes, frozen, you know, you know. So, the, that could be an interesting thing. Uh, but um, Would you rather have
1: a cyber weapon or a rifle that shoots more accurately 10 yards further than your previous rifle range? I'd go with the rifle that shoots 10 yards further more accurately at this stage of the conflict.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. When you have uh, people, uh, like, yeah, like just from a human self, def- like personal space self-defense, um, yeah, yeah. The, obviously, cyber weapons are effective when you're when ge- when proximity isn't a, a factor, right? We talked about this earlier. Geographical proximity, when that's not a variable, the cyber weapon's perfect. But obviously, yeah, yeah if someone's coming at me cool. with a bayonet, the last thing I'm going to do is like throw a malicious USB at them, right? That's yeah. just not going to that's not going to slow them down.
1: <laughs> you know, another thing um, I heard today, I, I mentioned I was at this uh, space conference. And mm-hmm. we're talking about cybersecurity of satellites and other space platforms. Had a great presentation from a leader at Space Command. And he made the point that in his mission space, if you do not have cybersecurity, all of your assets in space are just debris. It's <laughs> worthless. Wow. So, in that particular case, yeah, cyber is absolutely critical.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I agree. It's, 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 it's very, very relevant, but it's not. It's not the. I guess, like you said, having the rifle is more important. It's. It's like super important, but it's almost a, uh, like a required complementing piece or a required, a foundational piece, right? Um, to to, to the operation. Um. Yeah, yeah it's very thought provoking, Bob. This this conversation's been fantastic. I, I let me throw one more question at you before we round it out. Um, just to be respectful of everyone's time, Jess asks. Uh, do you feel global hacktivist participation on behalf of ukraine helped with this uh referring to the ukrainian hashtag i.t army
1: Uh i think it helped and let me tell you this uh i have been in frequent contact with the ukrainian uh, ministry of digital transformation since this uh, latest phase of the war started in late february and i've been doing what i can with a lot of other volunteers i'm not the hacker army but i'm a volunteer uh because I really want to pull for these guys. And the Ukrainian Ministry of Digital Transformation has been, first of all, before the war, they were critical in making Ukraine a digital society, helping citizens with digital applications and helping their startup world get started and accelerating. During the war, they've been helpful working with US IT companies, uh, Microsoft, Google, Amazon. They've been great. And it's a Ministry of Digital Transformation there. I've been working with them. And Starlink, um, we helped the Ministry of Digital Transformation uh, think through some of their issues with Starlink and, and optimize its use. And I'm still pulling for those guys. And I would say um, some of their counterparts in other agencies have been making use of this global hacker army and find it to be very efficient. Um, let me mention something else. With I think it makes a point, since you asked this earlier question about You know, cyber war. Another part of cyber war is having the connectivity to get your message across. Mm -hmm. And we've all seen Ukraine's leadership um, and workers have been very good at getting their message across. And their citizens have put these memes into our brains that we all know. Everybody knows the story about the old woman going up to the Russian soldier, uh, wanting to give him sunflower seeds. Put these seeds in your pocket so when you die, there'll be some sunflower seeds growing. Um, and there's the story of the ghost of Kiev who is uh, shooting down all these planes and the story of the uh, brave Russian defenders of Snake Island uh, replying to the Russian combatant, Russian warship, go fuck yourself. Yeah. Uh, these kind of memes really help galvanize. Did I just get beeped? Really no, no, helped... I, 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 I do the beep like just it's almost <laughs> okay. an
0: inside joke. <laughs> that,
1: that Really helped galvanize support of citizens in all these open societies. Which got us telling our governments you have to support this war, and so is that a part of the cyber conflict? Maybe it is. It's the making sure that you can communicate your message effectively using technology uh, to build support for your cause.
0: It's a fantastic point to end on, Bob. That cyber weapons, cyber warfare—it's not always a you know the a digital missile, right? It's not always. Supposed to be a weapon in the set in the in the sense of uh, the traditional weapon of eliminating a target, it can be, uh, you know, whipping up a crowd and, and and swaying public support, and that is part of the cool flexibility of cyber. Is that, um, it can be morphed into different kind of uh. uh actions on objective, right? It can, it can have different ways that it manifests its impact, uh, which makes it, you know, equally powerful and, um, you know, a modern weapon. So I, I love it. Jess Bishop wants to keep going for an hour. I appreciate okay. it. Um, so we are gonna, we are gonna wrap up here. Um, we've been talking with Bob Gourley. Bob, I always, um, Give my uh, my guest uh, an opportunity to uh, final thoughts, share with with chat. This has definitely been the fastest hour of Simply Cyber Live that I've ever experienced. Um, and if it's if chat wants it, if you are uh, uh, amenable to it, I would love to have you back on as a guest. We we covered several things that we might talk about today, and we got to two of them. Uh, so there's a lot of meat on the bone that we can pick at if you if you're if you're interested in it. Um, so let me know, and uh, but let me, let me throw uh, the big stage to you and let you get final thoughts. Sound good?
1: Okay. Sounds good. All you right. Know, thanks, Bob. Uh, I would like to tell you, we just had our OODA conference, UDAcon. A major theme that came out of that was the need for teams and trust. Um, and it's tough building trust digitally like this, but it can be done. And I would like to connect with as many of you as possible via systems like LinkedIn, or Twitter or YouTube. So find me and connect to me there. Um, It's, it takes a team to build strategic defenses and it's good being able to network with like-minded people. And I think that is my main primary message with the secondary message being, please keep in mind the lessons of Moonlight Maze. Number one lesson, you got to be proactive if you want to solve the big, big incidents. Jerry.
0: thanks. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Like, uh, so true, so true. And you know, I I want to just bring it up here really quick so everyone can see it. This is the Uda at Uda uh, Twitter account, right? This Bob. This is how they would get you if they wanted to uh, speak with you.
1: Yep, that's perfect.
0: Okay, and then also, guys, don't don't sleep on um, LinkedIn. So this is Bob's LinkedIn. It, he happens to be also restreaming uh live the 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 talk right now. So but Oh cool, I didn't
1: realize that.
0: Yep, yeah, you 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 are paired with me. So I appreciate that. Um so connect with him here. Um the man has an amazing amount of knowledge and experience and lessons and stories and just value um to the community you've definitely brought an amazing amount of um just insight and follow-up activities you've given me like five or six assets I've jotted down I'm gonna google them I'm gonna drop them in the show description after the fact um and then hopefully uh we'll see you again on another uh, stream Bob thank you cool. so much so so much for your time and your experience and uh, just sharing it with us
1: thanks Jerry thanks thanks for this
0: absolutely all right well let me send Bob off to the green room while I spend just a minute sharing with you guys I hope you guys loved, like when I say love, I mean, loved that interview. That was so awesome. Like just the the inner workings of how, you know, the original APT and it's not just all NSA and the Navy was involved in the cyber commands. Wow, it was super cool. I learned a lot. I'm gonna definitely check out uh, a lot of these uh, assets and papers that Bob mentioned. Also, I'd love to meet Matt Devoe. That that guy sounds like a just it, it'd be an amazing conversation to have with him. Chad, I want to thank all of you uh, for being here today. Uh, you guys are always a plus uh, audience members, and I, I genuinely appreciate it. Great questions, Jess. Uh, love the questions, Kimberly, uh, Adam. You, you know, you guys know who you are. That that uh, just Thank you so much. I want to remind everybody, uh, if you're new here, uh, many of you are Simply Cyber regular community members, but every single weekday morning, I do a live cyber threat briefing with a couple hundred uh, individuals, practitioners and people looking to break in the industry. And tomorrow is going to be no different. So if you want to get in on this, it's the fastest 45 minutes of your morning. Bring a cup of coffee. 8 a.m. Go to simplycyber.io slash streams. You can see the URL at the top of the, the stage right now. Uh, Go there and you'll see exactly um, where the upcoming stream is tomorrow. That's going to do it for this episode of Simply Cyber Live. Guys, thanks so much. I hope you got value. We'll see you tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. Cheers, everybody.